There's nothing like a clip from Talladega Nights to kind of create this holy moment. You know what I'm saying? I think that, I think that happened. Um, but, but here's the truth. Um, we, we all have a version of Jesus that we prefer. It may not be as, as crude or as overt as Ricky Bobby. But it's still as, um, it's still as destructive. Um, it's, still, it's just as made up. It's just as offensive. Because I, I, we're, we do that. We, we, we make up these ideas of, of who Jesus is. And that's what the characters uh, in this movie did. They described, in a way, they described Jesus in a way that made sense to them. In a, a way that they could prefer. A way that they can handle. A way that they could control. A, a, they described him in such a way that they could just stay who they are. And, but what we read before that, which couldn't be a, a bigger contrast... Uh, it's the testimony of Scripture. It's the testimony of Jesus Himself. Is that He is God and that He's in charge, and His reality demands that we that we change, that we change and alter our course. So, one of the popular ideas out there in culture is that Jesus is this, you know, He's this good moral teacher, uh, and so it would probably serve us well if we obeyed Him because you know He has some good things to say. So He is He is this bearded, you know, robe wearing somewhat effeminate Dr. Phil and his show comes on, you know, once a week on Sundays and, you know, he's got some really great things to say, but you wouldn't say that Dr. Phil was a good teacher, that he had good advice if he went around claiming to be God. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus went around claiming to be God. And so, you know, if Dr. Phil did that, you would say, A, he's crazy. B, he's evil. Or C, let's get on a plane and go to LA so that we can worship Dr. Phil, it doesn't really give you that middle option. It doesn't give you that kind of politically correct thing to say, well, he was a good moral teacher. He had some good things to say because good moral teachers, good, good moral teachers don't go around saying that they're God. So he didn't really give us that choice, does he? And I'm bringing this all this morning because I want to talk to us about how Jesus brings us peace. And because I love you and because I want to do well by you, I don't want you to leave here thinking that Jesus is just some aura of peace. Like Jesus is this force uh, that brings about peaceful vibes. And so I love Christmas time. I, you know, I love coming to church at Christmas time. You know, it's just this nostalgic kind of peaceful thing that makes me feel good. So I just want to begin this morning by destroying that view of Jesus by destroying that plastic view so that we can get to truth. And, and when we get to truth, that's where we find peace, that we'll find peace uh, that is lasting, a peace that is beyond any human capability of achieving. And so to tell the full story of Christmas, you got to go uh, way back. You got to go even before 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. You got to go back before even the beginning of time when this whole thing started, uh, this world created, we were created uh, out of this overflow of creativity and love uh, from God. Uh, it, the humanity came in existence in the Garden of Eden and our super duper great grandparents, Adam and Eve, uh, they were placed in the garden. This was our, these were the first people on earth. And um, 
but Adam and Eve rejected God as their creator. He rejected, they rejected God, period, thereby alienating themselves uh, from God. And this one act by them created the darkness and the pain and the disease and the death and all the things that we say is wrong with the world. It all came from that. Now, when Adam and Eve voted that they would reject God, they voted for all of us. And when they voted for all of us, uh, this disease and death and alienation became a part of our spiritual genes. And so we don't even have to try and we sin. It's just something that just comes naturally to us. We, we naturally want to rebel against God. We naturally don't want to line ourselves up with God. We want to create our own version. It just happens all by itself. That's why in the text that we read today, it says, and you, and that word you there is plural. It means, hey, this is all of us, that we were once alienated. And if you're wondering why the world lacks peace, it's because it's alienated from God. If you want to know why you lack peace, it's because you are alienated from God. And when it, when, what ends up happening is out of our alienation from God, out of our separation, uh, we still try to get something out of creation that creation wasn't meant uh, to give us. So in other words, so we're alienated from God and we're not, we're, not, we're not getting from the things that we seek, the things that we want, because these are only things that come from God. And in that moment, hostility grows in our minds. So we begin to get frustrated. We become angry. We begin to blame. We begin to uh, direct that, project that on other people. So the reason why my life lacks peace, uh, we say, well, you know, it's my wife. It's my spouse, it's, it's my kids, it's my parents, it's my boss, it's the government, it's something else. And we begin to project, project the hostility and the frustration, the anger we have on, on other people. And this is exactly what the scripture says. It says, in, in, our alien, our, in our alienation, in our separation from God, we grew hostile in our minds and we began to do evil deeds. And now here's the, the thing is, in our evil deeds, all we do is create further separation and again, we just further project that. So let me give you a couple examples. Number one, our spouse. I think we, we project this angst, this anger, this frustration, this hostility toward our spouse. Um, so the reason why life isn't what it should be is because, you know, my spouse, uh, she doesn't really take care of herself physically the way I thought. So we say that. We think that. And so the reason why my life isn't what it is is because it was her. I project that on her. Or I'll flip the tables. Uh, maybe you would say, well, you know, my husband, you know, my, 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 my friend's husband, you know, he's more romantic than my husband. And then all of a sudden, you, 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 it begins to build hostility towards your husband and frustration when all along, there's something deep inside of you. You both need a savior. You both need something, desire something that's outside of you, and you're not going to get that from each other, so hostility grows. Or it may not be your... Uh, it may not be each other. It may be your kids. Maybe you blame your children. And maybe your children aren't the geniuses and the athletes that you'd hope they would be. And one of the more, uh, I think one of the dark things about my particular generation is that most of us don't want kids. We want little avatars who will be like the perfect us. And we like project our lives through them. And so when they're not what we think they could be or should be, you know, we begin to project the hatred that we really have for ourselves upon them. That's why, you, you know, in Little League fields, you see parents, you know, going nuts because their 10-year-old kid struck out. You know, you, you have this hope that's somehow going to be manifested uh, through them. And so they go crazy. And when you see a, 
a parent like that go crazy, just know that, that really they hate themselves. And the reason why they hate themselves is whether they realize it or not is because they're alienated from God. And because they're alienated from God, there's hostility in their mind. And it's trying to fill a need that creation, that any creation, whether it's a person or a thing, cannot meet. So maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's not your kids. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe they failed you. And I don't want to take away the reality of your parents' failure. I don't want to take away their sin. Maybe they were abusive. Maybe they weren't around all the time. Maybe they led you in a wrong direction. All those things may be true. And I don't want to take any of that away, uh, the sin that they had and the pain that they caused you, but your response is on you and not them. Your response to all of this is on you. So maybe you're walking in a great degree uh, degree of bitterness and you don't want to let it go because you hate them. Because you hate them. And you're like, if my parents were different, I would be different. If my parents weren't the way that, you know, and maybe they were abusive. And again, I don't want to take that away uh, from you. But you are choosing to go around that issue over and over again. You're like a NASCAR driver. You just only know how to go left. And so you just go around and around and around. It's like you need to turn in away from that. The reason why is because you're alienated from God and you have this hostility built up. And it causes you to do evil things. I'll do one more. It may not be your spouse, it may not be your kids, it may not be your parents. Maybe it's God. Maybe God is the one who you have hostility toward. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he didn't do something or maybe he did do something. You begin to project your hostility toward God. So you'll avoid church until someone pesters you, a.k.a. this morning, to come. And so you're here. And so, and then you've, or maybe you've formulated these intellectual systems in your mind that deny who God is, but you will not take that same framework, you will not take the same tenacity uh, that you use to deny God on the things that you actually do believe. So, I mean, I could go lots of places here, but I'll just throw out one idea. Maybe you're hostile toward God and denied him because how can a good God allow suffering? How could God ever allow 9-11? How could God ever, you know, how could God ever let a plane crash? And so if you were, if to stay uh, intellectually consistent, if you were to take that same framework and apply it to what, what you believe, because what you're saying, you know, God had the power to keep that plane from crashing. Well, if that's true, you have to then worship him for every plane that doesn't. If you're, if you're upset that God would send, you know, a hurricane through New Orleans, then you've got to praise him for every sunny day. If you would be angry at God for taking away a loved one, then you need to praise him for the ones that you have in your own life as well. But we don't often have the courage to take the same um, framework that we use to deny who God is to actually take that same tenacity toward the things that we believe. We We don't deal with humanism that way. We don't deal with secularism that way. And there's a reason why. Because there's only one place in our lives that God is meant to fill. It's not something, we don't have that kind of hostility toward money. We don't have that kind of hostility toward uh, relationships. We have that hostility toward God because we are alienated from him. This hostility is built up. We're wondering why our life isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that we imagine. It's not the way that we projected it. 
And so we have this desire. We've all been hardwired with the desire for something transcendent, something beyond what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can see, something that's beyond our five senses. We all feel it. We all want it. And we all chase it in things whether it be money, whether it be career. So for example, that's why we all say things like, you know, if I could get to this level of income, if I just got to that level of income, then my life will be what it is only to get to that level of income and be supremely disappointment, disappointed. Or maybe it's a rela- If I can just get into this relationship, if I can just get out of this relationship, then that's where life will begin. If I just had this career, if I just had this job, if I just had this house, if I just had this skill, it, we all have this bar, we all have this criteria is that if I can achieve this, then somehow my life will make sense, then somehow I'll have the peace that I'm longing for, that my soul, that my heart wants to rest in, only to get there to find out that that's not true. And we do this over and over and over and over Again, they're like, it's like a mirage. It's like that thing we chase after and we think we can get there. And every time, the closer we get, the further we get away. And the reason why is because those things were never meant to satisfy us in the first place. And we have this alienation from God. Born into it. Born into being separate from God. And what your soul is wanting in a career, what your soul is wanting in money, what your soul is wanting in a relationship, what your soul wants, it wants to connect with the transcendent. And when you don't, when you're, when you're separate from that, hostility grows in your life, frustration grows in your life, and you're searching for it, you're searching for it, you're searching for it. And again, that just leads to evil deeds, which pushes us further and further away. Now the good news is that the story doesn't end there. That you look at verse 21 and it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by this death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So God does a complete work in our lives by going to the root issue, which is alienation from God. That is, we're separate. We're, we're apart and God brings us together. He reconciles us. He just doesn't deal with the surface issue. Uh, Religion just deals with the surface issue. Religion just deals with the evil deeds. And so if you're new to Christianity or, you know, you forgot or whatever, Christianity is not a religious system. See, religion religion, um, deals with the symptoms. So religion says things like, you know, if you you just say these prayers, if you do these good deeds, if you're more moral... Uh, this, is how you can, this is how you can connect with God. So if you do these things, if you're a good person, um, you know, secularism is a, uh, and materialism is a religion as well. It says you've got to make money. If you, have, if you achieve certain things, then, you, then you'll have this peace. But Christianity, doesn't, Jesus doesn't do that. He, does, he's, he goes deeper in that. He's more loving than that. If you just deal with the surface issue, it's like, it's like if you have weeds in your yard and you just mow it over like you do your grass, it looks great for like two or three days, and then the weeds grow up taller than the grass, you know, four days later, and it, you're back to where you were. But to get rid of the weeds, you've got to pull them up from the roots. And what God does, what Jesus does, is he comes into our lives, and he deals with the core issue. Jesus doesn't come in. He didn't come to this earth to like change our behavior. He didn't come in here to say, okay, I need people to be more moral. I need them to be more generous. I need them to be more loving, more caring. 
They need to be more giving. Now, that, those are just surface issues. What he says is the real problem here is at a root, is that is they are alienated from God. They're alienated from me. And because of this alienation, there's hostility and there's evil deeds that grow rampant. And so he comes and he deals with the core issue. That is that we are separate from God. And that's what the good news of Christmas is, that 2,000 years ago on a quiet night, quiet night in Bethlehem, that God came to earth, that he came in the flesh, and that he lived the life that we all know we should live. And then he died a death that we all deserve to die. And here's the great thing, that if you're with Jesus, if you're like in a relationship with Jesus, is that you don't have to feel like you have to live this perfect life because you can't, but the great news is that Jesus lived it for you. And you don't have to worry about what's going to happen after this life. You don't have to worry about your ultimate destination because you know that Jesus died in your place. God is a just God. He doesn't do double jeopardy. He doesn't convict the same offense twice. All your offenses, past, present, and future, have been dealt with through Jesus. He died for you. And I just want to say something really quick about his birth, his life, and his death to encourage you and to give you um, some pathways to him this morning. Um, Christmas and Jesus is presented in this very kind of like sterile way, this very sterile uh, package, which takes away about how, it takes away, I think, how real Jesus is. I mean, you think about where he was born for a second, right? He was born in a barn. I don't know if you like hang around barns, you know, very much. Um, I'll say it this way, you know, we, we as a family, we take these road trips and we'll, and we'll take these road trips in the country. And then, uh, you know, like every once in a while, we'll look at each other suspiciously as to say, you know, did you make a stink? And, uh, dad. And, um, and so we'll kind of look at each other that way. Uh, and then what started as like an, kind of a, like a slightly unpleasant smell, like turns into this rank stench that, you know, like leaves you gasping for air. And the culprit, thankfully, isn't anyone in the car but it's coming from a barn that's like a hundred yards away from the road and somehow penetrated not only the containment of the barn in the hundred yards between us, but a steel car with the windows rolled up going 65 miles an hour. (laughs) Barns can be a smelly place to be, and it's that place that Jesus was born. And then he was laid in a feeding trough. And that wasn't an accident. I think, if anything else, to show us and to teach us that Jesus comes right in the middle of our mess. So I don't know, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you think that, you know, my life is too broken. Maybe you think my life is too messy for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to enter. But he was born in the stench of a barn if for no other reason, to tell you and to communicate to you that there is no place too low for him to enter to extend his grace and his mercy. But his life, he lived in a very, very humble way. The Bible says that there's nothing externally that would cause us to notice him, much less esteem him. There was nothing about him. Uh, uh, He had no office. He held no office. He had no position of, no official position 
of power. He accumulated no wealth. Uh, He made himself familiar with sorrow, with hunger, with grief, with pain, with temptation, so that you and I would have a great high priest who would understand and sympathize that even though he has the name above all names, he has lowered himself for us. He enters our mess and he enters our problems. And then you think about his death. He was, uh, he died in a very painful way, a very cruel way. Uh, he was first scourged um, with a whip that had like broken pieces of metal and bone and glass. And the, and the Jews limited uh, the number of lashes to 40 minus one. Well, the Romans showed no such mercy. Basically, they stopped beating you when they when these physically fit Roman soldiers were tired or bored. And then with, after that, which killed most people, a crown of thorns was thrust upon his head. He, he then was laid upon a bloody cross that had already been stained by many other victims, nailed to that cross, lifted up where he died of suffocation. He... In his birth, he, he shows us that he, he'll enter our mess. In his life, he shows us that he'll sympathize with our problems. And in his death, he shows us that there, he, he enters our pain. He's not, he was not without pain. And that's just the physical side, not to mention the emotional side. Not to mention the fact that he was completely rejected. But the peace that comes in Christmas isn't this plastic aura Jesus isn't a force. He's not an idea. He's not a theory. He was a person. He's God who became a man so that we can be reconciled back to God, so that a hostility can be destroyed, so that we can have a peace, a true peace, not a season of peace, not a moment of peace. Not a peace that comes in you know, some emotion that really may have more to do with our childhood than it does Jesus. But a real peace. So you don't have to wallow in your hostility because your alienation. You just have to recognize Jesus, that he is the one, that he is the security that I'm looking for. The security that I'm looking for in money is really in Jesus. The, the, the love I'm looking for in relationships is really in Jesus. The validation I'm looking for in a career is really in Jesus. He's the set of arms that I'm longing to fall into. He's the one. And when you, when you know that, when you finally allow your soul to find its home, to find its place of reconciliation, to finally be back, to be reunited with its creator... It's there that the angst, that the frustration, that the hostility, that the feeling of knowing that you need to be a better person than you are, the knowing that no matter how hard you try, there's always someone who's a step ahead. And you can't quite get there. Jesus comes and he completely arrests that feeling and he floods your heart, your soul with peace. He floods it with love And he floods it with joy. And until you come to that place, you won't have the peace of Christmas.
But you can invite him in today. And maybe you've like never done that. Like you've, you've done church. Like you've tried church. And I, and I know that's hard for us as Americans to like really know the difference. But as you begin to describe, I've never really tasted that kind of peace. I've been going to church for 20 years, 30 years. Men, and I'm out of church. I'm, I'm going here, I'm going there. I'm trying this, I'm trying that. It doesn't come through changing our behaviors, changing our habits. As, as noble and as good as they may are, it doesn't deal with the alienation. The only thing that deals with the alienation is reconciliation by the only mediator who could mediate is Jesus. He lived the life that we all know that we should live, and he died in our place. And my hope this morning is that you would invite him in. If you've never invited him in, I hope you invite him in. If you have, but you still feel you've kind of distanced yourself from that relationship, Jesus is not, he has nothing but mercy for you. The Bible says that his mercy is new every morning. You can't tire out his mercy. I know you've tried. I've tried. He never grows tired of giving mercy. The Bible's picture is that Jesus, where he's positioned, is that he's outside of our door and he's knocking. And he wants you to invite him in. He wants to bring you the peace that we all want. He wants you to bring the joy that we all want. It comes to resting your life, resting your soul in Jesus.